Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeffrey Gannon. Jeff, how are we doing? Uh, I'm doing well, Andrew. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. Did we have a good Easter? Did uh, you do an Easter egg hunt? I did not participate in the Easter egg hunt, but there was an Easter egg hunt, yeah. This was the first year that I didn't, I stayed, so my family's from Illinois. Uh-huh. I was in Dallas by myself. Is that the first Easter? The Probably Easter? first Easter. I just oh, hung wow. out. I played tennis. I took up tennis. Okay. I played tennis around <laughs> where I live. There's some tennis courts. I've been playing lots of tennis. So I just, Sunday, it was nice out. Just hung out, played tennis, and yeah, didn't do any Easter egg hunts. First year, Jeff first year this is the first time you're tuning in with us make sure you hit that subscribe button both on the podcast and the youtube side of things thank you so much for all the support and being along with us on the journey this is our free form podcast which is where we answer some questions that people dm me or email me throughout the week um what i try to do is group them so if i get like multiple questions kind of about the same thing i may choose one person's question but you know, I tried just to pull the t- uh, most common topics. And if you want to be able to do that, you can email me on or at info at focuscompound.com or just follow me on Twitter at focused compound on Twitter. If you're watching on YouTube, that's right here at focused compound Twitter. I changed the picture. Got you smiling in that one. Look at that. Um, uh, so first thing I wanted to talk about today mm-hmm. is news came out yesterday after the close that Charlie Munger, Charles T. Munger, started buying Alibaba through the Daily Journal. Through the Daily Journal. Yeah. Okay. So that was kind of a surprise to a lot of people. I thought it was fascinating. 97 and still learning and still getting after it. But Alibaba, we talked a little bit about it in our last podcast. Well, actually, this is going to go out today or tomorrow. So we'll future be talking podcast. a little bit about yeah. it in future podcasts. That's happened a few times now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, uh, but... Munger loves investing, uh, you know, China and, and yes. stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, he's very big on China, yeah. Because um, they own BYD mm-hmm. through him, I guess you could say. And now Alibaba, um, uh, EBIT sales six times EBIT margin, 10-year EBIT margin, 28.9 times. Uh, but it's growing like crazy. 10-year revenue, Kager, 56%. 10-year free cash flow, Kager. 48%, 10-year EPS Kager, uh, 69%. Yeah. EV free cash flow 20 times. Yeah. Pretty interesting, huh? Any comments on Charlie Munger buying? He's a long-term investor. Mm-hmm. You know, they've held some bank stocks. Actually, I think, I mean, in, I haven't checked the latest things, but I think they didn't even sell their Wells Fargo when Berkshire did. So he's held on to some things that Daily Journal bought, you know, uh, 10 plus years ago now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, closer to like 12 years ago. So, um, in some ways it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know about the price, right? That's a lot for him to pay. Um, he's not someone who usually pays up a lot. You know, we've talked about that. He owns Costco, but he doesn't usually buy Costco when it's trading at, you know, whatever. But, um, he does love the great businesses. He's very interested in China. So it makes some sense. Yeah. Um, You've been reading a lot of books recently. You wanted, you wrote down on this, you read Washington Mutual, Penn Square, Bank Bailouts, and AIG, the AIG story. 
Uh, yes. So none of those are the names of the books. I unfortunately did not write down the names of the books for you. <laughs> Do you remember the names of the books? No, uh, they no, had very boring too. names. Um, so you read books. I read a Washington book Mutual. about Washington Mutual. Uh-huh. I read a book about Penn Square. I read a book about. Um, I read two books about AIG. Um, one I think was called the AIG Story. Uh, I believe that's the one that's um, Greenberg with, um, uh, I guess it's Lawrence Cunningham. Uh, that one I did not like and do not recommend. Why is that? Skip it. Um, it's it's sort of like propaganda for him. Oh, this, really? Yeah, the former CEO, yeah. So just like uh, sort of validating what he did, like defending himself or? Yes. And so it spends a lot of time on. Uh, lawsuits boardroom things and and all of that and it's also weird because it's sort of his book but it's not written by him so it's being he's being referred to in a third person the whole time it's very um not the most informative book but i it's unfortunate because i was really interested in that part of aig um whereas the one i'm liking a lot better is fatal risk but uh, that actually focuses on AIG's uh, financial products group. Um, and so it really only deals with the last 25 or so years of the company. Um, yeah, 25 years or so of the company. Um, and uh, I'm interested in like sort of the whole story. Mm-hmm. And it's a very interesting company that way. I didn't get a lot of it from the, um, the AIG story, the one that... Uh, was um i do think it was lawrence cunningham he's the one who did the berkshire Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's who it was i could be mixing that up with someone else but anyway that the book is uh that's the one not recommend what about the washington mutual book the washington mutual book would probably be um the most general interest sort of one uh, for people, yeah. Is it like how they grew the company, or? Yeah, the whole story. Although it mostly focuses on um, the how it went down. You know, um, we love books like that. Yeah, well, the other two <laughs> are blow ups. The other two are that way too. Yeah, the bank bailouts. Ba- bank bailouts. <laughs> yeah, what... which is a series of um, decisions about bailing out banks um, by the FDIC um, that ends in the 1980s is the last part they're talking about. And I guess it starts maybe in the very late 1960s. So it covers four bank bailouts, um, where the FDIC was involved in actually bailing out the bank. This is a significant thing. Now I don't think people think about it, but, um, the FDIC only insures deposits up to a certain amount. However, they have historically in cases where the bank was bigger, and it presented a risk. Basically, the Fed said, don't let this bank fail. Um, they had bailed out deposits over that amount. And in fact, in some cases, creditors and things like that. And so the deposit insurance limit now is 250000 It was 100000 back then. Um, but this is sort of about, are there things that are too big to fail? Stuff mm-hmm. like that. It was interesting that way. And deals with, why do we let all these... Um, uh, savings and loans and things like that fail. And then we tried to bail out some other things, including uh, Penn Square, which they tried to bail out and eventually they decided not to. But um, because it was a bigger bank and it was affecting other banks. So it was like in 08 when they brought all the bank CEOs, they're like, make a deal, figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
you can't not do it. And so it was drift over time that way because when FDIC was created, there was no intention to do bailouts above the size of the deposit insurance limit. Um, but they had this clause where they could bail out things that they viewed as essential, which people perceive to mean, um, I think what lawmakers intended to mean is like it was the only bank in the town or something, you know, to keep it open because it's essential that way. They started to interpret it different ways. So the first bailout they talk about that way is it was a, um, a black-owned bank that was created to extend credit um, to the black community in the Boston area. And there have been riots. And so there was public policy pressure to be like, can you keep this bank open? And that's one of the first times that they did that, viewing it as essential, even though it was a really small bank. Because they said, okay, it's essential to the community there. And then later that keeps getting extended to mean it's essential because it kind of would hurt other banks and all that, you know, and so that can be eventually you can do anything that way. So it was interesting and uh, interesting talking about the whole too big to fail idea long before anyone else was talking about that. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The Penn Square one is the most extreme wild sort of stories and stuff. It's a book strictly on that. Yeah. I don't think people will like it because it's very detailed. It's extremely detailed. But um, it was a um, big, at the time, bank failure, a really big story. It's also covered in bank bailouts. Um, uh, but that um, that was the most interesting in terms of what they did, how they did it. And it also ties in that you'd be interested in because I know you've read book on uh, books on fracking before. Mm-hmm. So this was the Oklahoma um, gas boom when gas natural gas was deregulated. And so this is sort of the first time they went for deep gas and stuff like that. And there was this big boom and bust. Yeah. And so that is almost half the story, only about half the story. It keeps switching back and forth. Only about half the story is the actual bank. The other half of the story is the drillers and all of that. Hmm. Yeah. Now I got to take a look at that. Uh, so Chris Mayer, the mm-hmm. author of 100 Baggers, he did a blog post the other day that I thought we should chat about on okay. the podcast because we've talked a lot about the book. Um, and he was saying that, you know, some of the most frequently asked questions or question is like, where do you get ideas? Yeah. Right? <laughs> I think that's like what every investor faces. But it was fascinating. He said, I get a lot of ideas from just talking to people, other investors, business people, analysts, etc. I would also recommend Fintwit, the financial community on Twitter. And he said lots of people talk about their favorite compounders and he uh, listed out a few different names on there. Um, Portfolio structure. So this part was interesting too. So he said, people like to ask me how they should structure their portfolios. Mm -hmm. There seems to be two schools of thought. The first is to concentrate. uh, So like what we do, come up with roughly a dozen favorable businesses to hold for the long haul. The second is what I'll call the venture capital approach. You create a portfolio of 30 to 50 names of two to 3% positions and hope a few of them hit. I've thought about that. Like what if you did the venture capital approach in the micro cap space, um, mm-hmm. you know, and you spread the risk around like that. I mean, that's a lot of work. And he actually hits on that too. He said, I like the former approach, the more concentrated approach uh, because he says there aren't that many ideas that meet a hundred bagger style hurdles that I could get some conviction on owning. And he says, besides, I enjoy learning about and following my portfolio companies at some depth. I can't realistically do that if I own 30 stocks. Yeah. So he said there's no right answer, but, you know, do what you're comfortable with. Obviously, we want we're very concentrated and 
would rather find the gem, I guess, if you will, in the the haystack. Yeah, I mean, the difficulty of the owning the 30 to 50 that are 2 to 3% positions, right, is that if you do get a 100-bagger there over time, um, that's not that different than putting large amounts in certain value stocks that rebound in multiple expansion stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You buy something at 5 times P, it goes to 15. If you make that 20% of your portfolio or something instead of a couple percent, you're getting similar sorts of returns, you know? Um, so that's, you know... I mean, if you get a hundred bagger that you put 10% or more of your portfolio and that is really changes people's, um, that money they end up retiring with or something. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you put a few percent in, then it's not going to, you have to hit a few hundred baggers then. Sometimes I'll see positions that are like 50 basis points, 60 basis points, 80 basis points. I'm like, I just, I don't get it. But yeah, now it could be like Phil Fisher liked to buy a little bit of some companies that he was interested in, but he didn't feel were mature enough. Um, maybe he didn't, he liked the product. Um, he was impressed by the potential for the market, whatever, but he didn't maybe like the, the management and feel that they had a lot of depth to their organization and that they would last through, you know, difficult times and had access to capital and all that sort of stuff. But he would really concentrate when he made investments in the big companies that he talks about in the books. Um, so maybe it's a way of a starter position or something. Mm -hmm. So he then talks about what about the valuation of X stock? So this is something we kind of talked about with Alibaba and we talk about this a lot on the podcast, right? So if you do catch a hundred bagger, right? At some right. point, it's probably going to become, you know, start your start to question it when it comes to valuation. But uh, he said, I get a lot of questions about valuation. I think if I had to rewrite the book or if I ever get around to a second edition, I might emphasize what I am about to say more than I did. No doubt it's wonderful to find a situation where you have a low multiple and lots of growth so you get the lift from the twin engine. So we mm-hmm. talked about that, right? Kind of like the Davis. Uh, right, double Davis play. double play, yeah. Um, he says a rise in valuation and growth, but those opportunities are often quite rare. I would put the business first, valuation second. Mm-hmm. If you have a business that checks every box except valuation, I would not let that discourage you from owning it unless the valuation was really out there. You could always start small and build up the position over time. Um, uh, yeah, for hunting for 100 baggers, so I'd say that's true. Mm-hmm. I also would encourage most people, most investors, to start with the business first anyway. Don't pick on the basis of price. Mm-hmm. Um, now, picking on the basis of price does work. Um, absolutely does work, but it's not the strategy I'd encourage most people to do. The first thing I'd say is, do you really want to be in this industry? Do you really want to be in this business, um, in this industry? And then is this valuation? Okay. Yeah. So when we laid it out, it's like a great industry, great business in the industry, right? Valuation valuation. Yeah. Um, but my views of like what an appropriate valuation are and other people's might be different. Um, you know, I wouldn't worry about whether it's trading at 10, 15, or 20 times P if you like the stock a lot. I would worry if it's trading at, you know, huge multiples of gross profits, sales, things like that. Um, Because unless it's some totally virtual company or something that doesn't have any capital in it, it's really hard to grow so fast that you can make up for that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. And here's the hard hypothetical, right? When should you sell an overvalued stock? That's, when should you hold an overvalued stock that you yeah. know for sure is overvalued? Right, that's hard. Or expensive. Yeah. I and mean, when you can prove it to yourself that you could get out of it into something else, then I think that makes sense. But that usually is the wrong decision if you're attached to the right business, I feel like. Well, it depends on what we mean by 
the overvaluation, mm-hmm. right? So um, there's certain levels of overvaluation that I think are especially uh, a problem. So is Costco overvalued? It might be overvalued. I don't know. Um, it's not cheap. It does certainly doesn't look cheap. Um, is Amazon, right? I don't know. Um, but there are other companies that do seem so expensive that it really presents problems to them ever being able to grow into those returns. And with bigger companies, it should be easier to figure that out. Like the argument should Buffett have sold Coke. Probably it's such a big company to be valued at such a high price that you can figure that out. For very small companies, it is harder. You know, if they're small and they're fast growing, it is harder to figure out. But if you're already the biggest in the world in what you do and your prices are really high multiple, then you know, you have to think about getting out of that into something else. But I I would say only if there you have something else to get into. I would never encourage people just to sell out of something to go into cash, you know, timing things that way, or just because they're afraid the stock will drop a lot. You can kind of figure out that it might be in a bubble, that it might be possible it'll drop a lot. But I don't think that's a reason to get out of that stock that you like, that business you like, unless you already have something else, mm-hmm. right? And we're talking about something else that you also think has really good potential. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not saying get out of that and then into something that's totally a deep value thing if what you're looking for is is hundred baggers. But if you found something else that you think also has those same potential and is that not a crazy valuation, then, you know, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Less discovered stock, yeah. He was talking about ditching, not ditching, but, you know, just kind of what well, he says, ditch, mm-hmm. um, you know, price to earnings ratios or EBITDA, EBITDA. And he was just saying, you know, yeah. start to think more about how much capital is required to produce a dollar in earnings. So basically return on invested capital right. times the reinvestment rate, right? How are they growing intrinsic value? How much yes. of those earnings convert to free cash flow? Yeah. Uh, what's the return on the capital vested in the business? stuff like that. What does the reinvestment opportunity look like? What does competition look like? Which is something we talk a lot about yeah. when I see these crazy valuations. The total addressable market is 500 billion or, or a trillion. <laughs> yeah. And the, but everyone always assumes that they're going to own that whole market and that's just not the case. Right. That is the problem. Mm-hmm. You know. But so just something to think about. Yeah. The total addressable market for Breeze Eastern was small, but it had market share that's probably five times what any car maker will have or something. I mean, that is always the issue. I mean, Apple dominates in what it does and in how much of the total addressable market does it have. It's mm-hmm. still a fraction of the of what some companies have. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, most huge total addressable markets end up with a bunch of different companies with much smaller market share. This one was interesting. He thinks you should uh, you should ditch the idea that you shouldn't buy stocks at their 52-week highs, but mm-hmm. wait for dips. He said, I used to pass on stocks sitting at their highs. I would try to wait for the dips. I prefer to buy stocks at big discounts to their 52-week highs or stocks near their lows. Silly belief. And one that has cost me money over the years, when I finally bought Constellation Software after years of watching it like a dummy, I paid something close to the 52-week high. My return on that purchase is quite good now. I don't think you feel this way about, I mean, no, I think you do feel this way. I don't think you like get the anchor, like, oh, I can't buy it 52 week high or 52 week I buy it 52 week high yeah. all the time. So, uh, but that is, I care a lot about price. That's a big psychological barrier. Yeah. For right. you, it's pretty, I care about price, yes. but not about what price did it used to trade at? Yes. What does it trade at today? I don't care about that. Yeah. If it's, I mean, there are people who are like, well, it's a 52 week high, but it's 12 times earnings. Yeah. So, 
why do I want to buy something at 20 times earnings that used to be at 30 instead of at 12 times, you know? It seems like if you're buying it at a 52 week low, you're probably trying to capture a huge multiple re-rating or like something along those lines Mm -hmm. where maybe if you're buying 12 times earnings at a 52 week high, it's like, who cares if you believe in the business, the valuation still cheap. Yeah. Growing. I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, I've never cared about that. You know, um, I guess maybe I would care. I don't know. I I don't think I would care about that either, but it's a fact worth thinking about if this is like an all time high for the multiple of some kind. Sure. So this is the, yeah. But even then it it doesn't, even then that wouldn't necessarily bother me to be honest. If it's all, if you find a stock that it's still cheap, but it, people say, well, but it's always been cheaper, you know, like on a PE basis. Like if you buy it at 12 times P and they say, well, for five years it traded eight times P. But if you think the business is good, then you pay that amount, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess those don't bother me. I don't yeah. know if it would bother me if it was like, I don't think it would. I think even if it went up a hundred some percent before I bought it, if it was still really cheap, I'd be okay. No, I don't think you think that way. Yeah. If for you, it's really <laughs> like, oh, your market today, if it's cheap on a valuation basis. Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess a lot of people would say, oh, I wish I, why didn't I notice it earlier or something? Well, it but. feels great buying on a dip. <laughs> I mean, because you, if you buy it, the stock goes nowhere but up since you... Okay, right like yeah it's a great feeling you feel like you're kind of yeah over I, that hurdle yeah I, I care a lot about the price versus what i think it's capable of earning and that sort of thing so what you would say maybe pe um something like that but not so much um no i don't care about the chart i do look at the chart from the long term we've talked about this before just because i want to kind of that as an introduction to the company in its history Mm -hmm. so is this a stock that's gone up a huge amount over 20 or 30 years or whatever or is it flat or down and if it is i need an explanation for what happened there Mm -hmm. you know um but i mean most of the things that we would buy i would assume if you looked at a chart yeah they're pretty high when we buy them uh, in terms of their past performance because all the things inside of them have been getting bigger and bigger you know yeah he expanded he said that uh the best performing stocks spend most of their time near 52 week highs. It makes sense. And that's what he was saying. If you have a great performer over the long term, And he said, you know, the other side of that is, you know what stocks tend to spend most of their time near lows? The ones you don't want to own. Yeah. Probably true. You know who's really good at buying stocks near their 52 week lows? Michael Burry. When his yeah. like 13 Fs come out, I look at them. A lot of the stocks, they kind of look like they're in that deep value bucket, 52-week lows, stuff like that. Yeah. Which, obviously, if you know the way you invest, is not surprising. Um, What else we got here? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I don't know. I can't even think from the past of what things I bought at 50. I mean, I've certainly bought things at lows when a lot of the market was at a low or maybe that industry was at a low or something. But I can't mm-hmm. think of a lot where like... There must be some examples I can't think of, but where it was pretty low and um, the rest of the market wasn't, you know, so it would have stood out on a list. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, in 2008 or something, the 52 week low list would have been every stock, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like that are different when you're looking now, you know, you sometimes barely find anything. Yeah. Uh, then he just went to talk about a stock that he thinks could be a 100 bagger. But no, it's just again, it, it's this part that's the most important to me right how much capital is required to produce a dollar in earnings how much of those earnings convert to free cash flow what's the return on capital invested in the business what does the reinvestment opportunity look like what does competition look like my brain immediately when i look at a company goes to barriers to entry and competition Mm -hmm. but then i kind of 
So if I had my, the way my brain works, I'd probably do competition first and then I go through everything else that he just laid out. Yeah, I, I would think sort of the same way. I mean, my question is always what constrains this business? Mm -hmm. So that could be competition that keeps down gross margin or something like that, but it could also literally be things like how fast can you turn inventory? How much capital do you need in the business to be able to produce a dollar of earnings? Like he was saying, you know, a pretty capital heavy business. There's, you know, not a way around that. Um, you can't suddenly turn that into something. If it's going to grow 20% a year over time, it's going to be growing its balance sheet. It's going to be leveraging up because it can't produce that earnings on its own, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so a question that somebody had uh, sent me. Okay. He was talking about how we've been, I've been reading books on banks. And he said, I'm trying to find the best biography or book on the banking sector. What would be your recommendation? He said, I'm looking for the equivalent of Sam Walton's Made in America, but for the yeah. banking sector. Um, my favorite banking book is probably Last Man Standing, but I okay. don't necessarily know how technical it is. It's more so about Jamie Dimon's life, but that's easily my favorite book. Um, hmm. help me out here, Jeff. I mean, finance books where you can read about like study history, right? So study like the SNL, study, mm. um, 2008, like anything just finance related, too big to fail, Ben Bernanke's biography. Yeah. The problem that I found though, is that I would love to read books about someone who built a bank. Uh, just like about building an insurance company or whatever and um, learn about all the way through and how they made the decisions and everything. There seems to be a real focus on, you know, whatever success things and stuff like that or the big failures, right? So there's a lot of books about those sorts of things that focus in on that instead of building something to last for a while. And that was one part of my disappointment with the AIG thing. Um, so I've now read a couple of books on AIG and I still haven't gotten a n much of the story that to me is kind of the most interesting part it's of it. It's confusing too. Like trying to get to the meat and bones of like those situations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even though I mentioned Washington Mutual, there isn't a large amount about how Washington Mutual got that big. Um, there is some. The, the unfortunate thing is how Washington Mutual got that big and some of these other companies is a lot of uh, merging and stuff. So there's a lot of books about all these different mergers that happened. Um, I was more interested in a lot of organic growth over time, mm -hmm. you know, and, and learning about that. Um, but yeah, I've read a few dozen books that to be honest, I can't describe any of them as a biography of a bank, which mm -hmm. would be really interesting. There's no, you know, the history of Berkshire Hathaway, but of a bank that I've read, but yeah. if people have recommendations, I would recommend reading anything Buffett has ever said about banks watching anything on youtube he's ever said about banks um and then just looking at a bunch of different banks i guess but no i mean that's a good question i mean i like last man standing um i'm sure there's a couple that i'm forgetting but yeah i, I mean, bought a bunch could, of those off that uh website that you showed i was just gonna say maxwell yeah. on banks um he actually just tweeted out which i sent to you i'm sorry max field yes. on banks maxwell. um He's got books in here. He's got a great list. I said yeah. I'm going through. He tweeted out, which I sent to you, the top 100 total shareholder return banks uh, ever. Did you see that? Uh, yes. And yeah. it, one, I guess a cool exercise, which I haven't done, but I did think it would be a great exercise just to go through like one through 20 and just look at all the banks and kind of see what they did and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. so it's a great way to find great companies if you think about it. Yes. Yeah. And to see the different models of how they did it and yeah. all of that. Yeah. So that, I guess that's the one I read funny money. 
Oh, the Wonder's Tale of the Penn Square okay. Bank. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So look at that, Jeff. You're going through one by one. Yeah. Hey, uh, you said you wanted to read this one, right? George F. Banker. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to. Uh, Baker. Yeah, Baker. Yeah. I don't remember if I. It, it, so I either bought them used on Amazon or uh, got them on Kindle. Uh, I have a backpack full of some used ones that i'll have to read some of them were not in great shape like i was only find on some of them i only were able to find like acceptable level condition you know oh yeah which could be anything you know some are like falling apart yeah Yeah. um but yeah i bought like half a dozen of those read a bunch on kindle and and um but some that are the actual print books too yeah um let's see so we have an accounting the pen square one will scare you oh really well i gotta read that (laughs) if you're yeah. Well, he has that as his number one, so. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Number one book he recommends. It has some similarities to the uh, the housing, you know, now that people have read about the housing thing, mm-hmm. because they're banks that are just participating in any sort of loans that they were making and uh, all of that kind of thing. So, you know, how they were able to get that big that fast. It was a bank that originated way more um, loans that ended up on the books of other major banks than it actually ever grew to in terms of total assets itself. It wasn't a huge bank itself, but it managed to put out a lot of bad loans. Yeah. So somebody has an accounting question. He said, I was going through one of your videos and Jeff explains that the DNA line added back in the operating cash flows need to be similar to the CapEx, and you put in parentheses, property plan equipment. Is this to make sure the company isn't understating its depreciation costs? As Buffett says, depreciation is a true cost of business and should be expensed against earnings. Also, could you recommend a book that goes into better or into getting better at accounting forensics? Thanks, mate. Cheers, mate. Uh, do you have any recommendations in the accounting? Um, accounting for value, financial shenanigans, quality of earnings. Yeah. Yeah, probably those two. Okay, so the CapEx thing, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to think about CapEx. A lot of people do CapEx as a percent of sales. Um, I usually think about it in a couple ways. One, look at depreciation amortization compared to CapEx. How close are they to each other? Two, go to the depreciation schedule in the uh, 10K, which is a footnote to the 10K, and it breaks down how fast they're depreciating things by year. The asset life you can calculate um, by looking at the business and saying, okay, so they had X amount of depreciation, which as a percentage, you could flip that over and look at how many years that would mean the life of an asset would be if assuming it was all straight line depreciation um, with no residual value. So for instance, if you're seeing it's 4% of their assets, then that's a 25 year life, things like that. If you get that and you look at the business and it supposedly owns a bunch of vehicles, you would go, well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. But if it owns a bunch of buildings, it does make sense or, you know, cruise ships or railroad stuff or whatever. So it's a lot of comparison of things like that. Then you try to read things about what the company is doing and saying that they're spending on to figure things out um, about what this CapEx might be. Um, how much of it is growth CapEx? Um, the best situations I found in terms of the depreciation things are honestly where management is not telling you the full story and actually things are a lot better than they're making it appear. Because sometimes people need things pointed out to them on the DNA and uh, that there's some amortization that's non-economic, really. It's never going to be cash paid out, things like that. Um, there was a thing where I wrote up NACO, and I pointed out um, that there is a line in there. And, and they don't give a lot. Of, they sometimes report EBITDA as part of things. But mainly, they just talk about their 
profit and things like that. There's like a built-in thing that's always there permanently because of a contract that they had the agreement. So you have a little bit of that amortization that's always there and really will never be in any form um, CapEx to replace it. Not something you'd acquire that to replace. So um, it's things like, uh, are they buying something when they don't have to? Uh, Building up assets that way. Um, Are they depreciating things too fast? I've seen companies that depreciate things rapidly. Um, That's a way of sort of hiding things. What about if they change their schedules? Yeah, so so that could be part of a larger thing across all sorts of companies and things, and that's fine. Um, You can compare different companies and how long they do each of their categories, or it could be out of line with other companies in the same industry. And obviously, for companies that are careful about what their reporting is earnings, that would be a way to, you know, make earnings look better or worse or, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, you have a significant amount of leeway in terms of the depreciation stuff mm-hmm. um, in, in theory. But like in practice, if a lot of what you're doing is easily identifiable, um, then someone reading the footnotes and everything would notice that this is a problem. But at a really big company, there is a problem because you're mixing everything in together. There's no breakdown of what's happening and you don't have a good idea of what's the different categories. But with smaller companies, it literally could be like you figure out, here's land, here's vehicles, here's buildings. It shows you the accumulated depreciation over time. That's another thing to think about. You might want to look at accumulated depreciation. I did find that in doing some like back testing of stuff that um, certain things turned up kind of value stocks that you might not expect. And a couple of things were having very, very large accumulated depreciation versus the market cap and things like that. And the others were having unusually high tax rates and unusually poor gross margins. And all of those are a little complicated, but they're ways in which the underlying business might actually be doing better than it appears to be. But more than that, it's really a sign of like very conservative accounting, right? Because if you tried to think about what's a company that's like aggressively accounting for things, you would notice ta- tax avoidance and you would notice- yeah, you notice it from the net income to cash flow. Yeah, and you'd notice it in DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, a big thing there is just poor cash production versus earnings. So one thing I'd really stress to people is always start in terms of your thinking about earnings with the cash flow statement. What's cash flow from operations? What's uh, free cash flow? So that's cash flow from operations minus CapEx. Start with that. Imagine that's earnings. And then only go back and try to figure out, okay, maybe the cash flows in a sense are misstated mm-hmm. in terms of what the earnings are because they're investing a lot in growth. Most people do it the opposite way. They assume earnings are earnings and then the cash flows are like a check on that. But I'd say start by imagining that you're looking at the business on a cash basis and only then go back and say, okay, maybe the free cash flow state, the cash flow statement is misleading because they're investing a lot in growth or something like that. Yeah. Creative cash flow reporting. That's another one. I don't know if mm-hmm. I said that, but that's another good book to kind of yeah, help uh, companies could or companies could game it and I think things like that. Quality of earnings. Yeah. I think it's pretty good that way too. Yeah. I think that's his name. Um NACO, Coal Creek News. They also released their annual letter to shareholders. Yeah, I would just say people are interested. I got a ton of questions about NACO. And just because of the way they put it out, a lot of people probably don't notice. If you go to the SEC site or you just go directly to their website, you'll get an annual report. The reason for that is they uh, annual letter. 
the reason for that is basically they put the 10k out on time and then later a few weeks later they put out the annual letter and yeah there's some news potential news whatever with um one of their power plant customers but there's nothing resolved there mm-hmm. as of our recording and if there was the company will probably come out and say something and they've not said anything mm-hmm. and then the last thing cambria we talked a little bit about this last week yeah Cam- cambria management buyout offer 80 pence versus current share price what's it currently trading at uh it's been between 70 and 80 since that announcement so i should emphasize it's 77 right now is that right Mm -hmm. okay so i should emphasize technically this is not an offer yet so if you can see there's a um there's a notice that says the board has approved allowing them to make an offer of 80 pence and then there's disclosures about the takeover code in the uk which is pretty complicated um but it sets in motion a whole sort of series of things the reason why i mention it is because people ask about things like you know merger arbitrage and other sorts of workouts and things like that and um there's a great blog uh, clark street value which focuses 100 percent on things like that though i think doesn't really do overseas stuff um i don't remember him doing much overseas stuff uh but this is the kind of thing right so this is basically what so the stock's been between 70 and 80 since the announcement they either will announce or not within about a month of when they first talked about it and then it could be higher or lower or it could not happen at all and then you kind of decide on um what uh the probabilities are that you think um it will be a higher offer than that that will be the offer how fast it'll be or that the deal will fall through or that there never will be a deal. Um, in this case, what's interesting is a lot of value investors that I talked to and stuff before uh, would have been happy to buy the stock at like 80 pence. So the downside that works out a lot better for you. Um, and that to me has been the kind of situations that I've bought into before has been situations where I'd be fine if the deal didn't go through. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been my best success rate, to be honest, when people ask about things like that, um, more complicated things, you know, we did one about simple things. We did podcasts, some of things about the more complicated ones, these arbitrage type things and whatever, by far the best success I would say is if there's a, if someone makes an offer, says they're going to make an offer, there's announced news about a takeover and you go, Oh, I would like to just own the stock. If it continued to trade at this price, uh, those are the ones to buy. Because they both turn out to, if the deal doesn't happen, you can just own the stock and it recovers eventually. There's real value there. This thing was trading at four or five times EBITDA. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, a lot of people think it's the best car dealer stock in the UK. Um, it has high returns on capital and stuff like that. Management owns a lot. Well, that's the issue here. Yeah, management owns 40%, 40% which is what's yeah. causing this issue to crop up. Yeah. Um, because basically, from my calculation on that, I would say, management probably doesn't have to put in equity if they yeah, could get the deal it. done at 80 pence yeah, yeah the, that if they wanted to you could do an lbo um and uh basically you only need to buy the other 60 percent. and given that i just said it traded at like four times and and they also you know the uk they only tell you every six months what they earned they know they're coming out of covid and they have some ideas what that might look like I don't know exactly what it'll look like, but I thought it'd be strong for used car pricing and things like that. So maybe they know that the next year or so will be good, in which case, if a lender is looking at next year's EBITDA, mm-hmm. kind of more than last year's being COVID, um, then maybe it's easy to finance the other 60% and 
and that wouldn't happen if you didn't have a shareholder who already owned that much. We should probably say too that the types of cars they're selling they're totally high. different than yeah, they're like Lamborghinis <laughs> and yeah, McLaren, um, Bentley, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah. And they would be one of the biggest dealers of those sorts of things because very few of those cars are sold in the UK each year. Um, it's because the accounts we manage hold Virtu, so people always talk to us about uh, Cambria, and I decided Full not to write we it don't up. own Cambria. No. And I've um, been uh, asked a lot of times about it, why not own that stock? And um, mainly because a management's ownership in it, they have long track record of um, good shareholder returns, high returns on capital, all that sort of stuff. And um, I didn't do a write-up of it just because I thought everything was good. I liked what I saw. But um, it's just in a segment of the market that I don't feel like I'd ever be as comfortable with. I mean, super uh, premium luxury, whatever they call that category. So... Um, Whereas Virtu is a more diversified portfolio of brands, um, you know, and, but on the other hand, we had a bad period for, um, stocks and things a year or so ago when all these things went down and then they recovered. Um, but what's interesting about it is it turned out not really to be much of a recession, not really increasing interest rates and decreasing um, incomes among the very wealthy and stuff. So it's not what you would have expected. You would have expected if there was some big dramatic thing to the world economy that would have really hurt high-end cars. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that it has or will, you know. So it may be that that things look pretty good. It could be, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they want to buy something that's deteriorating. Maybe they do. I don't know yeah, that maybe. they do. Yeah, you're right. Maybe. Yeah, Jeff, I maybe. don't know. Um, but yeah, so it's just that kind of situation that it's a fairly low price, right? Um, now, UK car dealers have traded around four times EBITDA or so for most of the last five years, I would say. Um, but that's a very low price compared to car dealers in other countries. A lot of people think that they should always trade a discount to the U.S., but that's not so clear from like what their actual returns on capital and stuff are. There's a perception of that though, because of legal risks. And it is true that they're better protected legally in the U S I don't know that that's significant though. I think the reason that they have the dealerships is usually not legal. If you have well-performing dealerships, it's not usually just that you're protected legally. It's that you're actually doing well with the, um, car maker that's providing, um, you with, you know, where you're basically their distributor for them. Uh, and I think most car makers don't want to sell direct. But you think Virtu will make a bid? I don't know that anyone can make a bid. I mean, yeah, they own forty percent of the company, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you can make a bid uh, if you want to annoy people. Um, it, not as easily in the UK. So you can't be as um, freewheeling in the UK with why you're doing what you're doing. You have to follow through a bit more, sort of. It, like first step you don't have to really um and there are some limits here actually there are problems with people buying more than one percent of the company uh because of what this puts into place once an announcement like this happens um though that's i mean that's a million dollars or something u.s dollars and something like cambria so it's not a problem for most people but um it's not a highly liquid stock you know, mm-hmm. but it is interesting that as far as I know, it hasn't hit 80 since the announcement happened and there's been some volume. So it's a good indication of the kind of thing that you could have just bought some of the volume every day 
um, and just never be willing to pay more than 80. Mm -hmm. If the deal happens and you get your 80, you didn't lose anything. Um, if it doesn't happen, you own the stock and you may buy more after it falls. Um, and if there's a higher offer, then you get a higher offer. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about it is how quickly there'll probably be news on it. Yeah, a couple of weeks, right? Month? Yeah. So I don't know, but people ask about that because uh, I've talked in the past about like when I one time I wrote a letter to a board and everything, it was a situation where someone owned 75% or so of the company and wanted to take it private and they offered 650 and within half a year or so the deal was done at 850. Mm -hmm. So, but same sort of situation. I think in that year they end up earning like a dollar and the stock was trading so below yeah. the stock was trading below 650 before they, they made the offer. Um, so it, it's the opposite of many of these takeover things and stuff, right? Where it's not really high mm -hmm. when management's trying to take it out, it might be pretty low. Um, and you can look back at the Berkshire things. There are a couple stories if you read how Berkshire ended up buying something where like, for instance, um, when they owned um, Scott Fetzer, like World Book and um, Kirby and all that, um, I believe that was caused by management trying to do a management buyout and it attracting the attention of other people. Um, and so Berkshire had to come in to buy them out. I wonder if that could be a good like filter, just like create a bunch of Google literature. Like it worked, it worked in the like 80s. Yeah. yeah, those worked really well in the 80s. Um, I mean, management buyout is usually a good sign that there's value there. Yeah, sure. We talked about Hunter Douglas and how that happened and everything. Mm -hmm. And that is a threat here with companies like this. The problem is when they own a big stake, it's hard for anyone else to come in with an offer that they'll take. And in fact, in the case that I was explaining, the, the bank insurance example, um, they explicitly told the board, we will not consider any offers from anyone else. We won't sell the company. Um, so we won't sell our stake and we own 75%. So the company's not being sold. But then they agreed to a higher price eventually mm -hmm. than they originally offered. And some of that can be the board says, well, if we can't sell the company, then how do we know what a fair price is and all that? You mm -hmm. know. Um, so I have said, though, that I think the UK might not be as favorable a place to have um, things that drive up the prices compared to the US when there's no reason to, that the board drives up the price on its own management trying to take out the company. I think in the US, they're much more likely to drive up the price on management, make it harder to do a deal like that when they're trying to take it out at a really low price. Because mm -hmm. um, I think people sue a lot and stuff in the US. Um, and that that's a constant threat to boards and things like that. So, um, but there's other examples like that. And I would say Clark Street Value is a good blog to read. They have some about some liquidations. Um, one of those liquidations I think is interesting, and I mentioned it before, I think, on the um, website. Liquidating a bunch of restaurants. In, Lobbies? Yeah, in Texas, yeah. Focus.com. Yeah. Um, and they've gone, so what's interesting about that is they've gotten to the stage of liquidation accounting. So once you get to this point, they're no longer accounting like they're a going concern. And so you get detailed disclosures um, of what they think the payments will be. And um, it really does report it as if you're looking at something that's eventually going to be wound down and, and mm -hmm. sold off. And so, you know, those are um, the, you know, and then you have to consider the time period, right? So these don't sound like big gains possible, but often the time period is pretty short. And it's uncorrelated to the market is usually the idea. The one thing I would warn is it is not uncorrelated to the market. If it depends on financing. 
So the the one danger is if you have a bunch of different deals, all all you invest in things like this. Like you think, oh, I'll invest in Lubbies, I'll invest in Cambria, I'll do this. You know, I can do all these different things. Some of them will work out. Some will be so so. Whatever. Um, a lot of them depend on getting some financing to happen. So if things seize up completely at any point, then you'd have a problem. So if you happen to be in everything in March of last year or something, and then things could fall apart for the next month yeah. or whatever. You, you run into some problems. Yeah. But otherwise, they're uncorrelated. There's no reason why, whether a deal goes through or not for a car dealership in... Um, for a high-end car dealership in the UK and whether a liquidation of a very low-end um, Texas uh, restaurant thing in in the US, they shouldn't have anything to do with each other. So that's a pot, you know, whereas like if you're investing in SPACs and things, to some extent, they all have much more to do with each other mm-hmm. and the forces behind them. So it's a, you know, I don't know. It doesn't make more sense than just buying things like, if you have no place else to put your money, then buying things like SPACs and stuff where people always talk about as parking money. Um, I would read blogs like that and look for ideas like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I just think that's what Buffett's talking about when he talks about workouts is situations like these. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. Uh, send me questions at focus compound on Twitter or email me info at focus compounding.com. If you want to get access to Jeff's write up where he talked about this situation, go to focus compounding.com and sign up. Thank you so much for all the support. Leave us a rating and review that goes a very long way and we will see you in the next podcast.